Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with RFF postdoctoral fellow Brian Prest about a topic I didn't even know existed until a couple of weeks ago, refined coal. Brian and colleagues are just out with a new RFF working paper that takes a close look at a $1 billion a year federal subsidy for refined coal. So what is refined coal? What's the purpose of the subsidy? And does the subsidy deliver? All you have to do to find out is stay with us. Okay, Brian Prest, my friend and colleague from Resources for the Future, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Hi, Daniel. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Brian, we're going to talk about uh, a new working paper that you and Alan Krupnik have just recently published. The paper, so people can find it on the RFF website, is titled How Clean is Refined Coal? An Empirical Assessment of a Billion-Dollar Tax Credit. So we're going to break down you know, that title and, and talk about what you found. But before we talk about this new thing, <laughs> something that's new to me, at least, refined coal, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in energy and environmental topics and how you started researching this kind of stuff? Sure, absolutely. So um, I first got into energy, environmental, economics, and policy uh, in my first job out of undergrad, actually. So in, in undergrad, I had taken some classes uh, on obviously public policy and uh, environmental economics, and I already had some interest going in. But um, my first job out of college was in 2009 uh, at the Congressional Budget Office. And there I was thrown into doing something that was very timely and kind of a, a pretty big deal in the world of environmental policy at the time, which was doing a lot of the economic modeling underlying the CBO's um, analysis of the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade uh, climate bill right. uh, that was passed that passed the House of Representatives in 2009, and you know did a lot of the modeling uh, around the subsequent legislation uh, that was considered in, in the Senate as well. Um, and doing so, um, I really gained appreciation for the uh, the complexities of energy economics and you know what it takes to uh, decarbonize uh, the economy, and um, that ultimately led me to pursue a PhD in the topic, uh, where I went down to to Duke to do a PhD in energy environmental economics. Go Blue Devils! Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I'm also a Dukey, as people know, and and that's where Brian and I first met. We were both working uh, for and with Richard Newell at the time, um, and I've continued to to do work with him going forward. So that's great. You were really thrown into the fire of the real world after uh, after graduation. Yes, absolutely. It was very exciting and uh, intimidating at the same time. Yeah, I'm sure. So um, so let's let's get into the topic at hand, which is uh, this idea of refined coal. So just to give people a little bit of background, as most of our listeners will know, total coal production and consumption in the U.S. has been declining substantially over the last decade. Coal production is down by about a third overall, but the production of refined coal has actually been growing pretty substantially in the last few years. So that's in large part because of this federal government subsidy uh, that's that, Brian, you estimate to be uh, on the order of a billion dollars each year in tax credits to support refined coal. So can you tell us what is refined coal and what is the putative objective of the federal subsidy? Sure. So, uh, so you have the subsidy, the federal tax credit is a $7 a ton tax credit. It's actually for the refining process itself um, of coal that's used in the electric power sector. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the refining process is you, you take uh, regular feedstock coals, you know, regular coal, and before it goes into the power plant to be burned, um, the refiners are, apply uh, a chemical spray. Um, and these can be a number of different chemicals. A common one is calcium bromide. And the idea is that this, these chemicals are essentially 
supposed to make the coal burn cleaner on local air pollutants uh, when it's combusted in the power plant. And so these are local air pollutants, so not CO2 you know, as related to you know, climate change, but things like uh, nitrogen oxides, SO2, you know, sulfur dioxide, and, and mercury emissions. Right. Um, and so uh, it's supposed to reduce the emissions of local air pollutants. In particular, the tax credit uh, requires, you know, in co companies in order to be eligible for the credit, uh, they have to demonstrate that they're getting certain levels of reductions on these three pollutants. Um, it, the tax law says you have to show that you're getting 20% reductions in your uh, rate of uh, NOx emission rates, that's nitrogen, nitrogen oxides, um, and also 40% reductions uh, in the SO2 emission rate or the mercury emission rate. And so on, on the 40%, you get to choose. But the point is you're supposed to get a 20% on NOx and 40% on one of the other two, SO2 or mercury. Right. And so there should be uh, public health benefits that accrue from those the reduction of those emissions. Exactly. Yeah. So SO2 and, and NOx are, are known to uh, form uh, particulate matter in the atmosphere as well as ozone, and those have uh, health impacts, uh, premature mortality, uh, and mercury is associated with uh, neurological problems, particularly in infant health. Right. And so there are, uh, you talked about sort of feedstock coal and refined coal. Uh, many of our listeners will know, that, will know there are different types of coal. So there's bituminous coal, there's subbituminous coal, there's anthracite, and then there's lignite. Is there a particular type of coal that this refining process is typically applied to? Uh, and are there like parts of the country where we tend to see this um, uh, this technology deployed more commonly than others? Or kind of wh where is this happening and what, what kind of coal is it happening to? Sure. So, uh, first of all, uh, refined coal is essentially ex exclusively used in the power sector, so in the use for, uh, of coal for electricity generation. Uh, anthracite is not really used for power generation uh, right. in the U.S., um, but uh, among the other three types that you mentioned, bituminous, subbituminous, and, and lignite, um, all three types uh, can, can be refined. And in particular, the tax credit does not uh, differentiate between whether you're refining one type of coal. Uh, or another. And uh, in practice, all, all three kinds of coal uh, are, in fact, uh, refined. Um, as for regions, um, uh, the bulk of uh, coal-fired power plants in the U.S. tend to be located in the Midwest. And so uh, you know, that also happens to be you know, where the, most of these refined coal uh, plants uh, are located. Um, one thing that does stand out that uh, was particularly interesting to me was the that there is uh, there are a number of power plants uh, up in in North Dakota that burn lignite. Uh, lignite is a relatively uh, low quality, cheap coal, um, and uh, and a number of these plants are refining uh, lignite. Uh, and uh, this is interesting because the as I said, the tax credit doesn't differentiate between whether you're burning cheap coal or expensive coal. Either way, the, you get the $7 tax credit. And so, you know, as a share or as a percentage of the coal costs, uh, you, you know, the tax credit is, is much larger for these plants burning uh, you know, low-quality, cheap lignite coal. So as an example, uh, lignite, a typical price for lignite coal is about $20 a ton. And so $7 a ton is a large fraction of that. Yeah, for sure. And do you have off the top of your head uh, what kind of benchmarks, uh, prices we would see for other types of coal, bituminous or subbituminous? You should think typically in the range of maybe uh, 35 to $60 uh, for the other kinds of coal. So right. higher. Okay. Yeah. So a pretty substantial difference there. Mm -hmm. So 
let's get into kind of what you did with this paper to try to estimate the effects of the subsidy and how effective it is at actually reducing some of these emissions. And one of the first things that I learned when reading this paper, and also I've seen you present this work before, is that the way you measure your emissions reductions is really important. So can you tell us a little bit about how companies measure those emissions reductions and and why that matters? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the tax rules issued by the IRS essentially give companies two options uh, to demonstrate that they're getting these reductions. One is through field tests at the actual plant where the coal is normally burned. And the other option is through laboratory tests. And as we understand it, most uh, operators tend to prefer the laboratory tests. And so these are, you know, a small, you know, one megawatt, so it's a very small boiler, um, to, and then they, just, they run it under, you know, idealized conditions often. Um, with certain kinds of pollution control technology, to, and they use that to demonstrate that they're getting the reductions. Uh, now we don't we don't have much information about the results of those lab tests because they tend to be private and you know, not publicly available. Um, but they uh, appear to differ uh, substantially from the conditions at the plant. And so, uh, you know, typically operators do not use these uh, field tests. And so that's another way that you could demonstrate you're getting the reductions. Uh, operators tend not to choose it, but that's what matters in practice. And so that's what we're doing here. Right. So to get your tax subs- to, to get your tax credit, you need to demonstrate that you're getting reductions, and it's probably easier to demonstrate that you're getting those reductions under these idealized conditions in the lab. That's right. And so how big is this effect when you look at real-world emissions data, which I, I believe you gather from the EPA, and you compare it with what companies are supposed to be achieving, what are some of the differences that you find? Right, and so we're we're finding fairly big differences. So as I mentioned, uh, the the tax law requires twenty percent reductions on on NOx and and forty percent reductions on on one of the other two, SO two or mercury. Uh, as for SO two, we're finding essentially zero reductions in practice on on average in the field. As for NOx and mercury, we're finding that the reductions on average in the field tend to be about half as large as uh, required by the tax law. So for for NOx, which uh, requires 20% reductions, we're getting something closer to 10%. Uh, and for mercury, which requires 40% reductions, we're getting something closer to, to 20%. Um, and in addition, for, for mercury, it's particularly interesting because uh, we, we're only finding reductions attributable to refined coal uh, when certain kinds of pollution control technologies are installed at the plant. And so without those pollution control technologies installed, then refined coal essentially has no impact on uh, mercury emission rates which is very different, presumably, from what the lab tests are showing. Right. And so just to to go a little bit deeper on that question, the uh, pollution control technologies, these are like SCR scrubbers or other pollution controls that coal units have been retrofitted with to reduce their their, um, air pollutants in other ways. So you're finding for for those plants that have these pollution controls, there, um, there is an effect of using refined coal, but for plants that do not have the pollution controls, there's essentially no benefit to using the refined coal. Is that right? Right. In particular, uh, that's true for mercury. Right. Um, however, the tax credit, uh, eligibility for the tax credit uh, doesn't differentiate between you know, what kinds of pollution controls are installed on site um, they're, if they're based on lab tests. Right. Right. So definitely something to look at in, in terms of the policy. And so the, the results you've just described, the sort of um, 
you know, lower than expected uh, emissions reductions. Those are averages across the country, if I if I read the paper correctly. Um, but do you see a lot of variation across different types of plants? So you've already talked about some plants that have pollution controls and, and plants that don't. Um, in the paper, you also describe how, uh, you know, some plants actually see their um, their emissions go up when they switch to refined coal, while other plants uh, might be actually achieving the target. So what's, what's the range of results across the different plants that you see? Right. Yeah. So as as you correctly point out, the, the numbers I just cited are, are averages. And so you might you know, think that maybe some plants aren't performing, but you know, uh, you know, maybe other plants are. And so maybe there's are some you know, good actors out there. And so you know, we dig down into this and we uh, essentially kind of redo the analysis at the boiler level, which is you know, smaller than a plant. A plant can have several boilers. And we try to find out, know, are there any boilers for which we can uh, you know, show that they seem to be achieving the emission reductions uh, required by the tax law. And we can't do this uh, for every single boiler in the country due to you know, data limitations. Uh, but for the ones we can, um, we essentially find a kind of a similar result. Some appear to be achieving the reductions on NOx emission rates. Um, a very small number appear to be achieving the 40% reductions on, on, on mercury or SO2. Um, but we can't find any particular boiler that appears to be achieving the you know, uh, jointly achieving the 20% reductions on NOx and 40% reduction on one of the other two. Well, so not a single one that, that you're able to get data for is actually hitting the specified targets. As far as we can estimate, that's right. Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about the way this policy is designed, the, the way I understand it, is that the uh, the tax credit is actually paid to the refiner of the coal and not to the operator of the plant that actually burns the coal. And so the refiner is the one that has to demonstrate these reductions, but the reductions in the real world don't happen at the refinery, right? They happen at the coal plant. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how that, whether that distinction matters uh, and how it matters in, in terms of policy design? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, one distinction about the credit is, as you say, it's given to the refiners. Uh, the refiners actually uh, typically have to be a distinct legal entity from the plant operators. And so a lot of these refiners are actually uh, outside investors, you know, think tax equity investors. Uh, and these guys actually build refineries on site at the plant, um, typically. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually a separate facility necessarily. Um, but uh, they, they are a distinct uh, company and, and legal entity. And uh, you know, and these are the ones who are claiming the tax credit, and these are the ones who are essentially certifying uh, or demonstrating uh, the reductions associated with the refining. But they're not the ones operating the plant, and so you know, it's possible uh, that the refiners who are testing you know uh, the the refined coal in the lab, uh, you know, and, but have no you know actual control over the operations of the plant, it's possible the refiners uh, don't realize that the reductions that you know that appear to be arising in the lab uh, don't seem to be arising uh, actually in the actual operations of the plant. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've already touched on some policy implications of, of what you've found here. Let's talk about a little bit more. The The government is spending, you know, you estimate about a billion dollars a year on uh, on this these tax credits. And according to, you know, the estimates that you and Alan Krupnik have, have come out with, 
you know, they, we're, they're not getting what they bargained for, right? The emissions reductions are not being achieved. But that said, you know, there there are still some emissions reductions that you find. And so if you look at the benefits of the emissions reductions, they might still be worth it from a cost-benefit perspective. And you do that test in the paper. So, so when you do a cost-benefit analysis on this, you know, imperfect policy, uh, what do you find? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Emission reductions have tremendous value in terms of you know reduced premature mortality among other things, um, and so you know it's possible that these twenty percent and forty percent requirements in the law are just you know overly ambitious. Forty percent is a big reduction in right. in emissions, um, and so so yeah, so we look at it and say well you know what are the costs of of this refined coal tax credit and what are what are the benefits based on the emission reductions that we do estimate. Um, and uh, we tally those up, and and we estimate the uh, the impacts on reduced premature mortality associated with particulate matter in the atmosphere caused by the accumulation of these pollutants. Uh, and then you know we we come to a, a dollar you know monetized value of those emission reductions, and we we put it in the ballpark of about five hundred million dollars a year uh, in in benefits. Um, and the, but then we compare it to you know what are the costs of this, and so you know the the costs uh, both private costs and 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 social costs and taxpayer costs are uh, come out to about seven dollars a ton, which is the value of the tax credit, or as you say, about a billion dollars a year. And so, you know, that suggests that the, the costs are far exceeding the benefits. The cost of a billion far exceed the, the benefits about of about five hundred million a year. Um, right. However, you know, if we were getting these very very large reductions uh, of you know say forty percent in SO two, uh, then the benefits would easily justify the costs. But we don't appear to be achieving those reductions in practice. Right. It's also probably worth noting that the uh, benefits that you estimate are primarily associated with PM two point five, right? This really small particulate matter, and does not include all of the potential effects that we might think about, including, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I don't think the cost-benefit analysis accounts for ozone or mercury emissions. Is that right? That's right. Well, so uh, a couple components there. In particular, we think we may be actually overstating benefits for a number of reasons. Uh, so one is that uh, we um, we haven't accounted for the water quality impacts of refined coal. Uh, the chem- chemicals used in refining coal, in some cases, have been known to uh, escape with the wastewater at power plants and, and can form uh, carcinogens in drinking water. So those would be you know, negative environmental impacts. We haven't accounted for those in our analysis. Uh, in addition, we think we might be overstating the impacts, uh, the benefits, I should say, uh, of NOx and, and SO2 emission reductions. Uh, and this is how this is because of how refined coal interacts with uh, pre-existing environmental policies, particularly on uh, the cap and trade policies for NOx and SO2. The idea being that if they're already regulated and th- by a cap, and that cap is binding, any reductions in emissions at one power plant is just going to free up allowances that they can sell to other power plants to increase their emissions. Right. And so you know, to the extent that those caps are binding, uh, you know, our reductions uh, are overstated and uh, the benefits are probably much smaller and could actually be negative. Right. Okay. So as with all RFF work, there, there are many, many details that, um, that are important uh, and that we would encourage people to, to check out in the paper. So, um, so let's let's close up with um, one last policy question, which is the the subsidy 
that you describe in this paper is up for reauthorization in 2021. Do you think there's interest in the Hill uh, in in potentially looking at um, at this tax policy again and, and maybe reconsidering some of its elements? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this issue is actually particularly policy relevant right now, uh, even though we've been working on this for, for many months now. Uh, just last month, uh, two bills were introduced in the Senate by, uh, I believe, six different senators to reauthorize this tax credit. Um, and so it is very, there's very clearly uh, ongoing and you know, upcoming legislative ex- activity um, on this tax credit, um, in addition in context of uh, other expiring tax credits uh, that are consider- being considered for overhaul uh, around the same time. Um, in addition, I'll, I'll say that uh, the last time this tax credit uh, was was altered, uh, well, I, I should say the last two times it was altered, uh, were in uh, 2008 as a provision that was put into the Troubled Asset Relief Program um, during the financial crisis. And then later it was included in uh, the 2010 uh, extension of the, the Bush tax cuts um, under the Obama administration. Uh, and those were both you know, very much must-pass pieces of legislation. Um, and it's possible many people didn't really notice that they were in there. Um, at the time, there was no real uh, systematic evidence on on the use of, refi- of refined coal in the field, um, but now there is, and so we're hoping that this could help uh, inform policymaking going forward uh, as this tax credit is considered for extension. Right. Yeah. Two thoughts come to mind. One is that the the old saw of, you know, a billion here, a billion there. So pretty soon we're starting to talk about real money. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the context of big pieces of legislation, that can absolutely be the case. And then the other point to make, and we say this at the end of every episode, and but I just want to reemphasize it here, that at RFF, we don't take institutional positions on public policies. We do research and analysis and provide that information and let decision makers make decisions. And so I just want to make clear that that's that's what we're doing here. And Brian, you know, this is a fantastic example of uh, something that's really timely, really policy relevant, and really informative. So, uh, so kudos to you and Alan for, for this work. Thank you. So now uh, that the serious part is done, we're going to close it up and uh, talk about what is on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So what have you watched or heard or read recently that you've enjoyed and that you'd recommend to our listeners? And I'm going to start with two quick things. The first is um, just an uh, admonition to Brian that Brian, you're not allowed to recommend Our Planet, the documentary <laughs> uh, from David Attenborough that's on Netflix, because three of our last, I think, six um, podcast guests have recommended it. So you're not allowed to do that. You have to do something else. Can, can I recommend Planet Earth or, or Blue Planet? <laughs> no, those are off limits too. And um, and and the second thing, just because Brian, we're we're buddies, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna give you a little quiz, okay? Uh-oh. So. Brian and I, we both done a lot of work on oil and gas and oil in particular. So, so Brian, if you had to make an estimate, how much crude oil do you think the U.S. is exporting these days? Like over during 2019, what do you think we're exporting on average? These are gross exports, right? Gross exports, yeah. Uh, I feel like I should know this much better than I do, but I'm going to guess 4 million barrels a day. Oh, you went high. That that's a little too high, actually. Yeah. It's a little too aggressive. But but the number is still pretty amazing. It's almost three million barrels ah, a day. So <laughs> so in 2016, the U.S. essentially exported zero crude oil, and today we're exporting about three million barrels per day. To put that in context, that's more than the UAE. That's more than Kuwait, and it's more than most other OPEC nations. Um, Saudi Arabia, which is the world's biggest exporter of crude oil, in 2017 exported about 7 million barrels per day. So the U.S. has just 
you know, it's just this incredible time in, in terms of oil production in the U.S. And um, and it's amazing to to watch it. So um, so now that I've uh, stumped Brian, uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to, to share what you've been reading and what's on the top of your stack. OK, well, I, I'm going to move away from from oil uh, after getting that question wrong. Um, <laughs> but I will talk about uh, something that I've read recently that is related to oil and in, in that I know that you've done work on uh, the boom bust cycle in, in oil. Uh, as oil prices go up and down. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I read a book uh, in a very different field about uh, lobsters recently, actually. It's called the, the Last Lobster, Boom or Bust for Maine's Greatest Fishery, and it's by uh. Uh, Christopher White. Uh, and it's, it was very interesting. The most striking and memorable statistic I learned from this, this book is that uh, the Maine lobster fishery, well, the northeastern lobster, lobster fishery, has on average been moving north by 4.3 miles every year for the past several decades. And that's quite a long way for lobsters to go every year. And this is because of, you know, warming uh, climates have, you know, led lobsters to move north towards uh, colder water. Uh, but the result has been that, you know, the, the, the Long Island lobster fishery, which used to be a huge lobster fishery, is essentially, you know, non-existent these days. Mm-hmm. But, and now you're seeing a huge boom in lobster uh, uh, caught up in, up in Maine. And so it creates these interesting boom-bust cycles that, you know, move north over time. And it also raised uh, the question uh, of what's going to happen, you know, as they continue to move north into Canada, uh, how will Maine's economy change? Um, and uh, and apparently we've actually been seeing fishermen catch uh, tropical fish um, more and more commonly uh, off the coast of Rhode Island these days. And so uh, I thought it was an interesting uh, illustration of the interrelationship between uh, the economy uh, and uh, you know, changing climates uh, in ways that are not obvious to people or, or intuitive to people, even to yeah. people like me who study this a lot. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. And um, it brings to mind that David Foster Wallace uh, short story and maybe book too called Consider the Lobster, uh, which is actually about cooking lobster. It's not about <laughs> fishing lobster. But um, but yeah, anything with lobster in the title, I think mm-hmm. that that story. Anyway, um, that's a fascinating uh, recommendation, Brian, and we'll put a link to it um, on the show page so people can go check it out. And we'll also encourage people to check out uh, Brian and Alan Krupnik's recent paper, which is called How Clean is Refined Coal? And uh, once again, thank you so much, Brian, for, uh, for joining us on Resources Radio. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.